Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR 161-AB51, The Culture of Modernism, From the Easy Chair, Excellent Colloquies on Various Subjects. R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair Number 153, September 4, 1987. This evening... Otto Scott and I are going to discuss the culture of modernism. Now modernism is an aspect of life that we are not too prone to think about seriously. The Enlightenment followed the Reformation and Counter-Reformation then Romanticism and the Age of Revolution. But in this century, the culture has been the culture of modernism. Modernism, as most people think of it, has reference to an aspect of uh, biblical study. That is, it refers to those who deny the infallibility and divine inspiration of scripture who insist on treating the Bible naturalistically and as a collection of uh, legends, myths and various uh, expressions of people over the generations. However, modernism is much more than that. So, before we get into the discussion, I'd like to go back to one of the key figures in modernism in this country. The circle around the uh, New England transcendentalists gives us the sources of American modernism. One of the key figures, uh, of course, the key figure was Ralph Waldo Emerson. It is one of the ironies of history that some 20th century conservatives have looked back to Emerson for their inspiration. Emerson is the epitome of every evil that we have in this century. Now, Octavius Brooks Frothingham whose dates are 1822 to 1895, was a Harvard man and the son of a distinguished Unitarian clergyman. He wrote a book which set forth to a great extent the creed of modernism. The title was The Religion of Humanity. For him, humanity was God. And to be separated from humanity was to have a living death. He said, and I quote, Humanity has but one life, breathes but one atmosphere, draws sustenance from one central orb. To be reconciled with humanity, to feel the common pulse, is life. To be alienated from humanity, to have no share in the common vitality, is death. The slightest material separation is felt disastrously, unquote. Now, Frothingham 
while not an Orthodox Christian, did believe in some of the Orthodox doctrines, such as infallibility. But for him, infallibility was not in the Bible, but in the spirit of the age. This is what he wrote, and I quote, The interior spirit of any age is the spirit of God, and no faith can be living that has that spirit against it. No church can be strong except in that alliance. The life of the time appoints the creed of the time and modifies the establishment of the time. Unquote. So, truth is whatever the spirit of the age says it is. Thus, in terms of Frothingham, there is more uh, truth to be found by far in rock and roll concerts because they represent the spirit of the age than in the Bible or in the churches. Now, Frothingham gives us the spirit of modernism. It is a total ex uh, acceptance of the spirit of the age and an insistence that we must flow with it become a part of the spirit of the times. This, whether it is in education, or in economics, or in politics, or in religion, or anything else, is modernism. It means that you do not import any standards, that God cannot provide any standard to judge the world. The spirit of the age determines the truth of the age. Otto, what observations would you like to make at this point uh, as to the nature of modernism? Well, I'm more inclined to equate modernism with liberalism. And liberalism is what most of us were taught we went to American schools. It's supposed to be responsible for all the advances of the West. Uh, for instance, on the question of the French Revolution, the liberal argument was that the treatment of convicts was ameliorated. Men were no longer broken on the wheel. Uh, they were no longer uh, flogged or hanged for stealing a purse, that sort of thing. On the other hand, liberalism has created new crimes, which uh, the liberals don't like to mention. Uh, we have now serial murderers. I just recently heard that Richard Speck was up for parole, murdered eight nurses, and has been living at the expense of the taxpayers ever since, which I consider a moral crime of considerable dimensions. And when I think about liberalism, especially as it has developed up to today, if we go from Frothingham's day to today, we see a great expansion of these ideas that he expressed, that Emerson expressed, and so forth. We have inherited the execution of these abstractions. And in execution, they add up 
to a renunciation of the use of societal force against the transgressors of society. In fact, we can even say now there is nobody who is accused of transgressing our society. Our society has no standards. Anything that anyone wants to say or do, short of murder or open common crime, is permissible. In fact, many crimes that used to be crimes are now no longer crimes. Abortion is no longer a crime. Uh, they are now selling body parts from fetuses. That's not a crime. Uh, when the Nazi medicals did that, it was uh, terrible. Uh, when our doctors do it, why, well, they're just being sensible. Treason is not a crime. We have traitors in high places who uh, openly announce that they want to sit down with the enemies of the United States and negotiate our surrender. That's not a crime. So I think when we come right down to it, that we're living the, in the results of Emersonian thought. We're living with the consequences. We're going to pay. We are paying in our lives today for these ideas which severed man or severed our society from its biblical roots. Yes, very definitely, liberalism is modernism. Of course, the overall term that historians and sociologists are now using is modernism yes. and the culture of modernism. I think one of the interesting aspects of modernism uh, came to focus in the death of God school as it surfaced around, oh, 1970. One of the points that uh, Altizer, who was a leader in the school, made is one that is not often appreciated, but it is basic to modernism, basic to liberalism, basic to every aspect of this cultural force. The death of God school did not say that there is no God, or that God is dead. Their point was that God is dead to us. Whoever he may be, and whatever he may think, we don't care. He is irrelevant to our lives and our interests. And this has been the uh, very important aspect of modernism as a whole. It was never that we have proven that there is no God, or we believe there is no God. Some naive atheists have held that. But modernism has not been atheistic. It has been indifferent to the question, outwardly at least, because it has been so man-centered, it does not care whether God exists or not. He is irrelevant for us because everything is going to be in our hands. All right. If we take that, and I think you're right on that, the effect of this has been to discard 18 centuries 
of Western tradition and thought. It means that all our great thinkers and almost all our great men, assuming that not our great villains, but our great constructive individuals, have been uh, outmoded, obsolete, are no longer relevant. All the, the accumulated literature of the West is irrelevant. Everything is going to be reinvented. Now, unfortunately, this eliminates tragedy. This viewpoint reduces everything to a surface level. It takes away all the depth of human experience. And therefore we have the liberal who in effect says nothing matters. Mm -hmm. There is no reason to resist the communists. There is no reason to be upset over the gulag. There is no reason to oppose Ortega. There is no reason for our boys to get involved in any unpleasantness anywhere in the world because nothing is worth fighting for. Yes. Uh, to uh, document that again from Frothingham, the fact that there is an insistent sweeping away, as you said, of all the centuries of Christianity. Frothingham <clears throat> said that in the story of Genesis, the serpent represented the supreme creative purpose that comprehends centuries and a world. Oh, well, he was just recognizing a, a fellow. Yes. Then he went on, let me quote him here. The first sin was the first triumph of virtue. The fall was the first step forward. The advent of evil was the dawn of intelligence, discernment, enterprise, aspiration, unquote. In other words, no progress until you overthrow any boundaries, any laws, any concept of good and evil that is external to man and imposed by God. All right. These were the late Victorians. These were the Victorians. Living in a very comfortable world in which the West was dominant, Christianity was global, the armies and the navies of the West ruled the whole globe, and they could speculate, like Baudelaire, with flowers of evil. It sounded all very poetic and interesting. But and Darwin, too. And Darwin. But we are now confronted with evil. Yes. We are now face to face. These fellows have reduced the barriers between civilization and evil, and here we have it in our midst. It now, is... It, it's it's interesting because their unrealistic attitudes have been continued in the liberal philosophy despite the evidence of recent years of the murders of millions of people by bad governments and so forth the liberal insists that a government is the proper repository for all power that there is no struggle going on today between good and evil. If you say that, they consider you a redneck, an intellectual redneck, if I could coin a cliché. And 
they in they are talking on the same terms that their forebears talked when their forebears were secure. But we are no longer secure. It is interesting uh, you call attention to Victorianism that uh, some of the scholars of uh, the culture of modernism trace it from the Enlightenment through Romanticism through Victorianism yes. to yes. modernism, which yes. Virginia Woolf said uh, began its triumph in 1910. Yes, the world changed. Human nature changed in 1910, <laughs> according to Virginia Woolf. A poor, insane lunatic who drowned herself. And uh, I, want, I have to really stop for a minute and reflect on a number of totems, literary totems, in the United States in recent years, the United States and Britain and, and Western Europe generally, of people who whose lives are absolutely devastated tragic lives who are held up as as models for the young Virginia Woolf a uh, suicide uh, Nathaniel West the day of the locusts another suicide uh, I, I just read a review <laughs> of, of uh, S.J. Perelman the humorist and his life was an absolute nightmare uh, Lillian Hellman who has now been proven to be a psychopathic liar and so on. You mentioned Virginia Woolf, that's why I laughed. Something came to mind. I haven't looked into anything by Virginia Woolf since my university days, some 50 years ago. But didn't she write uh, the weird book in which she took something from... Uh, Tristan Shandy by Lawrence Stern. Orlando. The question, no, the question about whatever happened to King Charles's head. Oh, that was from Dickens. Was oh, from yeah. Dickens. Dickens. Uh -huh. Yeah, Mr. Dick in, in Dickens <laughs> could never get around. He couldn't finish a paragraph without King Charles's head appearing somewhere. He wondered what they did with it. Yes, well, Virginia Woolf wrote a book about that, I believe. <laughs> Rambling uh, onto every subject and coming back to King Charles's head. <laughs> well, of course, their great vogue was at, after World War One, And the argument there was that the sacrifice of millions of men had proven what Hemingway called a hollowness of the great words. Honor, patriotism, and so on. Dulcia decorum est. Uh, the poets and everybody else began to ring that. However, that generation is all now in its 80s or 90s. Uh, the remnants are all that remain. I don't know what they think of what they've uh, bequeathed to us. But we are coming very close, in my opinion, to some some very serious times. And here we have a governing class that is indissolubly wedded to liberalism, 
And liberalism, in my opinion, cannot confront reality, will not admit reality. If you talk about any actual conditions that actually exist, if you talk about the behavior of the underclass in New York City, I think you would be uh, sent into exile. That generation that was so dominant in the 30s was described by an historian in the 50s as uh, having grown up uh, after plumbing and before taxes. <laughs> <laughs> I've never forgotten that. Well, and the world was absolutely perfect for them. <laughs> they never faced up to problems or to evil. Here we have a quote from James Burnham, who has been resurrected in a sort of a eulogy by the National Review. Now, I haven't read anything of Burnham for many, many years. Nor But uh, despite... Uh, I get criticized every so often for the people that I quote, as though I approve of everything <laughs> they've ever done, simply because I quote something that I think they said that was sensible. He's talking about liberalism here, and I believe this is an excerpt from his book on uh, the suicide of the West. In the he says, history has a remarkable way of providing visual symbols of what is really going on that tell us much more than the pretentious statistics of the sociologists. In the parks of our great city, exactly as in all jungles, honest men may no longer move at night. When the sun goes down, they must stay near the fire while the beasts prowl. Mm. In those dark jungles and along the jungle paths into which the night transforms so many city streets, huge dogs now join the few hunters still on trail. What have dogs, killer dogs, moreover, to do with men? But dogs are, of course, appropriate companions in hunting the beasts of the jungle. Now, the fact of the matter is we are living in the midst of a shambles. Yes. We continue to call it civilization like survivors of Rome because we don't know any other terms to use. But the fact of the matter is that this is a, a, a swamp Moreover, not many are honest enough to say that this is what they want. They want to see Christian civilization destroyed. Remember Henry Miller, the pornographer who wrote Tropic of Cancer, Tropic of Capricorn, and much more, declared that what the world needed was a modern time of the assassins. When all culture, all reading, all literacy would be destroyed, books would be destroyed, men would return to an animal level. This is happening. And he said after 200 years of living without any knowledge, any writing, even speech, then they could emerge from the cloud of Christian civilization and create a new culture. Well, Orwell 
in his 1984 talked about old speak and new speak yes. in which the new speak was a primitive slice down a pruning of old speak so that a generation or two of the new speak they couldn't read the former old language which is what happened in China China's language was reduced to its basic form so the modern Chinese cannot read the literature of his forebears or the histories of the past. Uh, American language, if we can call it a language, no longer has a bona fide dictionary. The, the, the most recent unexpurgated uh, dic dictionary or uh, uncondensed was so poor that in international treaty making we now have to refer to the Oxford Dictionary because we don't have a valid American dictionary today. And I listen on the air to announcers and to people debating subjects and so forth. The average American can no longer express himself. He's reduced to body language. He's reduced to strange noises pantomimes, pictures, everything, cartwheels. He simply cannot discuss anything of any complexity, which means that the language is falling apart, and yes. it's falling apart on a university level. Yes. Well, this is modernism. Mm -hmm. Yes. It is a religious fact. It began with an assault on scripture. It made basic to its philosophy, as Frothingham said, the destruction of virtue and the advent of evil to triumph. And it says, in effect, that your inner feelings, the compulsions of your being, must dominate you. That's exactly the reverse of all our traditional thinking. Self-control was always held forward as the sine qua non of maturity. Yes. We taught young people in their teens, in fact, before their teens, they used to marry in their teens, that self-control was essential, uh, much along the same lines that if you can't live by yourself, you're not worthy to live with somebody else. Yes. Well, our schools are the triumph of modernism. They are religious institutions to the core of their being because they seek to teach precisely those things that are spelled out by Frothingham in his religion of humanity. And it was the men who were associated with Frothingham and the Unitarian Universalist movement, men like Horace Mann, James G. Carter, Charles Sumner, the senator, who were the mainspring of the public school movement, state control of education, so that the first area of triumph for modernism was in state-controlled education. Well, yes, and what are they propounding in these 
academic temples. The argument of Burnham, which happens just to have fallen into my hands today, as a matter of fact, says that our attitude toward third world countries is very similar to our attitude toward the people in the slums. We think that all those millions in all those underdeveloped areas, like the people in the slums, uh, will be able to get out of their situation by education. All they need is education. And here we sit with more schools than any other society has ever produced in the history of the world, talking about education, when the standards of all these schools keep declining. Yes. Are we going to educate the third world into what? Into what we're doing? Into what we think? Into the idea that no country can lift itself up out of the swamp without foreign aid? Europe wasn't given any foreign aid. It didn't. It, no, nobody sent professors into Europe to teach them anything. The Europeans, through the ages and through Christianity, improved themselves. Well, here he goes on to say, this is logic. The soul of liberalism and in the Western civilization that liberalism has permeated. This logic works like a spiritual worm corrupting the will of the West to survive as a distinctive historical entity, easing the dissolution of the West into the distinctionless human mass. He's talking about death. He's talking about suicide. Yes. Interesting. Uh, the spirit of the West uh, expression was used. I was reading a journal earlier this evening, and several writers in it, Europeans, were expressing uh, their total distaste for the term the spirit of the West or European culture. What would they prefer? They denied that any, any such thing existed. They're in the process of demolishing it. That's oh, yes. They insisted on the freedom of each to have their own culture and the peoples within that country to express what was of importance to them. In other words, they were calling for anarchy. They believe in anarchy. It's their way of life. They're here all over the world. And that's modernism, the spirit of the age. You live in terms of your impulses. You enthrone them. And yet, everywhere that liberalism has triumphed, spontaneity has been destroyed. Yes. It leads to the triumph of mass man, the group not the individual. Well, I think as we go further into this subject of modernism, it is important to see how some of the champions of modernism in our time define it. In the spring of this year, 1987, the American Quarterly uh, put out by the American Studies Association, gave an entire issue to the discussion of modernism. 
The first article was by Daniel Joseph Singal towards the definition of American modernism. Now, an interesting point was made. The goal of modernists was defined by the words of William Carlos Williams, and I quote, Man is an animal, and if he forgets that, denies that, he is living a big lie, and soon enough other lies get going, unquote. In other words, since man is an animal, there is no truth outside of himself. And therefore, uh, Dewey, of course, is greatly approved by this author. The goal of education, the goal of learning, must be experience. You try to cultivate experience in every area, because only by experience can you find out what is your lifestyle and what pleases you. Again, a second article by Malcolm Bradbury, an English scholar, is in essence a commentary on the book by Hugh Kenner, A Homemade World. And of course, this is what modernism wants, and it is at war against a non-homemade world, that is, a God-created world. So the goal of modernism is a homemade world. It has to be a human product. Well, they are totally dependent upon an incredibly complex structure infrastructure, the economists call it, in order to keep themselves clothed, fed, and housed. And they're talking about departing from society intellectually and emotionally and uh, culturally. Now, it takes different forms. I think when I look at modern art, I mean, they call it modern, it's now almost a hundred years old. And I notice that Hilden Kramer is very upset because he hasn't been able to reconcile his conservative politics with his, with his defense of avant-garde art. Well, of course, we know it's because his cousins are involved in it. <laughs> and he's, he's protecting them as part of uh, his crowd. Whatever his crowd produces is bound to be good, whether uh, anyone else likes it or not. Modern music, which is now a minimalist, uh, composer Glass is composing an entire symphony using only four notes. Uh, we have modern dance, which has lost all form and all pattern, and which is embarrassing to watch. Uh, the German uh, Germans are sending over a ballet group which is performing in the nude. And I don't know uh, how the police have managed to look away on this one, but of course they don't pay any attention to that anymore. Well, here you have an absence of form. Yet, if you treated these people in reality the way they are treating society, they would be the first to scream if you said, never mind the forms, I'll kick you, 
instead of saying hello, they wouldn't see the correlation. If you take away the forms, everything falls. Yes. And this was the grim aspect of the Russian Revolution. Because the avant-garde writers were the ones who were saying precisely what the modernists have been saying ever since. They were saying that the forms were worthless. Artsibashev, in the novel Sanin, ridicules the idea that there is something wrong with incest. And yet, with the revolution, these men were among the victims. The first to go. They welcomed it, and they suffered from it. Because you could not create a new society with men like that. You couldn't create any kind of society. These are destructive individuals. Yes. It's interesting that the revolution clamped down every time. The French Revolution, under Robespierre and the Committee of Public Safety, clamped down on all these aberrations and made it an absolute... The journalists who gloried in dumping on everything, suddenly under Robespierre, fell very quiet because otherwise they knew they would lose their head, like the journalists of Havana, Cuba today, or Nicaragua. It's interesting that the Chamorro family in Nicaragua, which used to own La Prensa, which was finally put out of business by Ortega, one of the Chamorros is editor of the Ortega institutionalized newspaper. The other members of the family got out of the country. Yes. You mentioned dancing, and uh, Singal, in his article on modernism, speaks of that. And let, I quote, The scores of dances introduced after 1912, most of which had originated in black culture, featured heightened bodily expression and far more intimacy between partners, the very names of the dances, Bunny Hug, Monkey Glide, Grizzly Bear, and Lame Duck, suggested a delectable surrender to animality and rebellion against the older sexual mores. More notorious was the shimmy, a black torso-shaking dance that became the rage just after the war. It was accompanied by a new form of music called jazz, also black origins, which featured still wide, wilder rhythms, frequent improvisation, and recurrent attempts by early bands to make their instruments duplicate animal sounds. Moral reformers, ministers, and members of the older generation were predictably aghast at this outbreak of impulse. Jazz and modern dancing in their eyes, writes Paula Fass, seemed to herald the collapse of civilized life. It is clear in retrospect that, viewed from a Victorian perspective, such forebodings were not without justification for the behavior of middle-class youth during the 1920s demonstrated just how widely modernist values had spread within the nation and how quickly they were approaching dominance, unquote. Well, look at the sequence since then. Yes. 
now we have the rock music we had Woodstock we had the rock festival up here in the mountains only a couple of weeks back in which 73 were arrested and the sheriff said 10,000 could have been arrested but he didn't have any place to put them there, uh, there's a whole group, I understand, uh, not groupies, of particular followers who follow the rock bands from one concert to the next. They don't follow them because they admire the musicians or the music so much, but because the crowds, they, they, uh, they sell drugs to the crowds that the rock people attract. So in the train of the rock band, is a whole bunch of drug dealers and negotiators. And often these, you might say, emotional orgies create violence, create riots. People have been killed at them. Now this, of course, is a, is a total outbreak of anarchy. And yet the liberal government of the United States refuses to recognize the existence of anarchistic orgies, refuses to recognize that there are whole cities that are unsafe. I recall in in uh, one of Macaulay's histories there was a there was an area in London that was unsafe for honest people. Eventually, the authorities had it surrounded by the army. They drove out all the denizens and they set fire to it and they burned it to the ground. Mm. And that was that. We don't have, with all the panoply of American power that we keep hearing so much about, all the nuclear bombs and the bombers and the tanks and the ships, the Navy without minesweepers and <laughs> so forth, we don't seem to have the nerve of an adolescent. This is modernism. Uh, both both sides, the the anarchism and the weakness of the intellectuals. I think the weakness is probably a worse sign for our culture than anything else. Well, it is interesting that uh, in this study of modernism and the American quarterly. Some speak of postmodernism. They feel that modernism hasn't gone far enough. So they're going to push it further. What are they going to do for an encore? <laughs> and one of the articles is by Daniel Bell of Harvard. Oh yes, the post Christian writer. Yes. Yes. Uh, he was the one who gave uh, John F. Kennedy the idea that we are now living beyond morality all our problems are merely technological well John certainly was <laughs> yes he writes on modernism mummified so he speaks of post-modernism and uh, he Quotes with approval those who speak of the agenda now as the deconstruction of man. Oh, oh. And, and the end of the Enlightenment credo of reason, 
also the epistemological break with genitality and the dissolution of sexuality into the polymorph perversity of oral and anal pleasures. For them, this was the liberation of the body as modernism had been the liberation of the imagination. I don't think I'd like to meet him. (laughs) The sexual revolution that followed broke into the gay and lesbian movements as one current and the somewhat overlapping rock drug culture as another. Imagination had come out of the closet and lived out its impulses openly, (laughs) unquote. Now, that's the triumph. That's what they believe in. Now, the rawest kind of uh, sexuality and antisocial anger and expression. But suppose this were to be adopted by the surrounding community of Boston, and suppose they suddenly said to these savants at Harvard, why don't you scrape up your own food? We're busy having a good time. What do you suppose Mr. Bell, Dr. Bell, would say? Dr. Bell, I I remember because he wrote on the post-Christian era. He buried all the millions of Christians as, as obsolete. Just about 10 or 15 years ago, wasn't it? Yes. Well, you remember during the 60s, the student rioting at the University of Santa Barbara or the University of California at Santa Barbara. They burned down, you remember, the Bank of America. And uh, the president of the bank was trying to tell the students it was all a misunderstanding. He was a liberal. Yes. Why were they burning down their own friends? Well, he was, I'm sure. Yeah. Because you can't really get very far in the United States today unless you are a liberal. Mm-hmm. Everyone else is outlawed, intellectually outlawed. They don't put your picture up with a poster for a reward, <laughs> but uh, they certainly excommunicate you from the communications industry. Yes. Well, their objection to modernism, those like Daniel Bell and two or three others... Doesn't go far enough. Yes, and it has been trapped by capitalism because modern art has become the darling of the corporations. Yes, the corporations, the businessmen, of course, are always somewhat pathetic when it comes to art. Uh... They're buying modern art collections now that all the people in the United States have turned their back on them. Yes. Uh, because they, uh, the businessmen are trying to get along always uh, with the powers that be. This You can't do business unless you can get along with the powers that be. And if you read the newspapers and believe the newspapers, uh, we all love modern art. And you know, of course, this is nonsense. Ninety-five percent of the American people wouldn't use it to a, for a bonfire. <laughs> well, if the uh, museums controlled by liberals and the corporations controlled by liberals bought no modern art, there wouldn't be any sold. The market would be <clears throat> non-existent existent outside of... New York City. 
Well, one of the reasons that the liberals will no longer debate, one of the reasons that they now jump up and shout dirty words and drive people off the stage is that they cannot debate. Mm -hmm. They have no arguments. Yes. The arguments are now coming from uh, the Christian community. I've received a newsletter just the other day, a Christian newsletter. I think you get it too. I can't think of the name of it right now. But it lists 2,000 correspondents. Now, I don't think Associated Press has any more than that. No. If that many. Very true. Well, <clears throat> what is happening is that as these academicians concentrate on their own thinking, they become less and less related to reality. I have been appalled in reading some of the scholarly journals to find them discussing things very solemnly that are matters I am concerned with like the church and state battles in the mm -hmm. Corinth. Mm -hmm. And they haven't the foggiest awareness of what's happening. No, they don't. They, they don't. are never in the courtrooms. I'm sure they don't read the transcripts. They approach the subject with their own preconceived ideas. Well, this is true in literature. They have, now the, re the critics have something called structuralism which quite frankly makes no sense mm -hmm. but they have developed a vocabulary in which they talk to one another and the great mass of literature comes boiling out uh, and they're unaware of it we have no no longer do we have writers you recall when you were young writers were big in the United States mm -hmm. uh, our leading novelists were, were considered very important figures well since liberalism cannot face reality, since liberalism prefers to uh, assume a worship of the abstract instead of the concrete, we can no longer produce an acceptable literature because novels in the old school used to portray American society the way they are, the way it is. Well, we can no longer do that because we cannot recognize reality. We cannot discuss it. We can't be open about it. Uh, yes. Uh, one of the things that uh, I learned when I left the university it was this. I subscribed to a number of things to continue ostensibly to be well-educated. And I quickly came to realize, as I met people and traveled a bit, that uh, the two things I was reading in order to keep up with the world of books, the New York Times book reviews and the Saturday Review, did not reach a literate public. 
they reached people who wanted to know what books were being talked about. They were not readers. No, they were readers of reviews. They were readers, readers of, of reviews. Not readers of books. That's right. And more and more I find university presses diverging in terms of level from common literature. Pat Knopf, the uh, chief executive of Athenaeum Publishing, was supposed to be, a, and it is, well known as a literary house. Once said to me, Otto, he said, the trouble with your writing, he said, is that it isn't professorial and it isn't average. It falls in between. I said, well, that's where I fall. I said, that's where most people fall who read books. I should think that would be a plus. It isn't, though. It isn't. No. Not in a culture that... You have to be either a pedant or a pornographer. Yes. No in-between. Mm -hmm. But most people are in-between. Yes. Now, how long can we live with a, a culture which on the surface is portraying a world that doesn't exist? With newspapers that constantly report bulletins from the government, regulations, a few scandals here and there, and lots of entertainment features, and nothing about the actual activities or nature of the people. A theater which is similarly uh, living in a world of its own, so forth. Uh, de Tocqueville, you know, at one point, writing in the 1830s, said that he knew of no country where freedom of expression was so limited as in the United States. And he went on to talk about the pressure of conformity, in which he said that it was possible that if that developed, that continued, that the country without an aristocracy where the mediocre was keeping the talented in line, the worst tyranny the world had ever seen could result. By a fluke of fate, or a decision of God, whichever you prefer, the Soviets reached that point before we did. But don't forget they were led into it by their liberals. The liberals opened the gates for the Bolsheviks, just as there are liberals here are opening the gates for the communists. And in the meantime, the conformity of American society now the liberals were one of the first to say, well, they were against conformity, but they are not. They are for conformity. They are intolerant. Yes. If you ever have the misfortune to disagree with the liberal, you'll soon discover how intolerant they are. They immediately assume that you're a racist, a Nazi, uh, everything evil. Yes, and that is coming in now in that uh, one or two people who are fighting cases involving uh, First Amendment rights, religious liberty, yes. are being accused of being that. And, uh, they've never mentioned the subject of race, they've never mentioned the subject of uh, uh, anti-Semitism, but suddenly, because they're out of line, 
they're fighting for freedom for Christian groups every kind of name is thrown at them well every kind of name is permitted mm -hmm. we are supposed to be very careful of the sensibilities of non-Christians we're supposed to be very tactful we're not supposed to offend we're not supposed to say anything to injure their delicate feelings in the meantime we're told also that we should swallow any insult mm -hmm. to Christianity or to Christians nothing is too bad to be said in one of the first books I wrote and it came out maybe 25 years ago I had a reference to Islam which was uh, mildly very very mildly unfavorable and that I was contrasting it with Christendom and a Christian culture and you would have thought I had committed some crime it was the one thing that was picked up by some people in the book how dare I speak ever so lightly slightingly of Mohammedanism well this is I suppose modernism mm -hmm. liberalism which respects every religion except the dominant religion of the West it respects every religion except the religion of its own forebears well it is looking ahead a la Henry Miller to the time of the assassins it wants to destroy Christ Christian civilization so that there is no memory so that no one can remember that there was a Bible that there was a Christ this is the kind of world that people like Henry Miller have imagined and I believe that Henry Miller was simply more forthright and honest about some of these things than some of the more sophisticated writers. Well, that's proven by the fact that he was picked up. He was expressing what many wanted to say. Yes. And the fact that he was picked up yes. proves that. But if we, if we, uh, if we correlate modernism and liberalism, I mean, as Machen did, mm -hmm. The liberal clergy is probably the cutting edge of the anti-Christian movement. Yes, it began in the church, and this is the heart of the matter. And if the liberal clergy is what has gutted the Christian community of the will to fight, yes, the will to defend itself, the idea that no force should ever be used. We actually have people now out in the street saying that we should never at any time, anywhere in the world, for any reason, use force. Well, we have a major movement of the Animal Rights Association that's becoming a problem. They are bombing universities where there are animal experiments. Uh, they are uh, bedeviling legislatures so that it's costing farmers a great deal of money because some uh, very attractive uh, Hollywood uh, 
female stars buttonhole the state legislators and persuade them to vote for their animal rights measure. And then the farmers have to pour out a lot of money into fighting uh, legislation that has been introduced. Well, Sidney Hook, another individual whom I'm not too fond of, but who occasionally has hit the mark very well, defined liberalism as an ideology. He said the average liberal doesn't seem to realize that it's an ideology, but it is an ideology. He said one of its main planks is no enemies on the left. Mm-hmm. And yes. if, if you notice, the liberal enemy is always the same as the communist enemy. Yes. Pinochet of Chile, etc., etc. Yes. Now, there are no aerodromes being built in Chile. There are no Soviet troops in Chile. Why should we be upset about Chile when we're not upset about the Nicaragua? And the murders in Ethiopia are legion. Oh. But uh, do we hear the outcry about Ethiopia that we do about South Africa? Oh, no. Well... Liberalism is an ideology, and a clergyman who is liberal has embraced an ideology that is at its base anti-Christian. Exactly. And I think if enough Christians were to understand the liberal ideology, they could begin to recognize the enemies of Christendom, not by their name or their appearance, but by the arguments they present. Yes, our time is just about up, but I think you put your finger on it, Otto. We have to recognize that while we love a particular church and our uh, grandparents and great-grandparents were uh, members of that particular church, if the pastor or priest is a modernist, it is anti-Christian. It is working to destroy everything that church ever stood for in the past. And we cannot be a party to it. It is an enemy to God and it is an enemy to man. It looks for the time of the assassins, whether consciously or otherwise. Well, thank you all for listening. We enjoy these discussions with you and we trust that they are rewarding for you to listen to. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by Christrules.com.